welcome to Red Femmes. Thanks, George. This is episode three of Red Femmes. Red as in well-read, femme as in feminist. When are we going to stop saying that? Maybe um, episode 10? Yeah. That's good. <laughs> that's good. So you want to tell us what today's show is about? Contraception. The good, the bad, the impossible. Mainly we're going to talk about the pill. I feel like I could put in like Loretta Lynn's The Pill as the intro. Like a little <laughs> yes, musical intro. Good. Now I've got the pill. <laughs> hormonal, that's the pill. If you, for all you men out there, that's hormonal. Hormonal. Oh God, another word I can't say. <laughs> hormonal birth control for women. But we're going to pair our contemporary takes with a fascinating older text that tackles the issue of sex without pregnancy from an age that couldn't have dreamed of a technology like the pill. Mm-hmm. But first things first, let's do our Q&A. So today's questions, what did you grow up believing about motherhood and what has changed? Well, I'll let you go first since uh, you're the mother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... I grew up believing that motherhood was a natural and happy state for a woman, that it was different from fatherhood, and that a mother is someone who is not omnipresent, but who is omni-available, if that makes sense. So I grew up feeling like my mother was always there when I needed her, but she didn't intrude when I didn't need her. So motherhood involves presence, but not nagging. Support, but not taking the wheel. And motherhood appeared to me like this delicate balance that almost made itself invisible by being so closely attuned to what people need at whatever age and stage they're in. I saw motherhood as this facilitative care that made home life a happy place to be in, full of play and books and home-cooked meals and music and nature and jokes and coziness and family traditions, which we had a lot of. And my mother never drew attention to herself, but she always kept things running smoothly. It was this comforting mix of gentleness and stability. Where are you in the birth order? In your family? I'm a middle child. Can oh, so tell? is my mother. Oh, really? The middle children are all the black sheep. You're no! The black sheep. I thought it was always the youngest who was a black sheep. I'm the good girl. The middle is the invisible child, you know? Oh. The one who, you know, keeps... My mother is the middle child, who, the only one who escaped New Jersey. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do an episode about birth order. <laughs> we should. <laughs> well, the vast majority of what I learned about motherhood was caught and not taught. So I have four kids, and I just naturally did what my mom did. It was a really delightful experience when my kids were babies and toddlers. I would just hear myself talking to them and singing to them and playing with them and go, that's my mom's voice. Like sometimes literally the exact same words or jokes, but but the tone, the playful tone, you know, I would hear her coming out of my mouth. I would see her in my playful interactions with them. And, you know, I could recall from the depths of my memory, all these lullabies that she sang to put me to sleep. You know, I had them all memorized, even though I hadn't sung them in decades. I just started the first verse and then the whole thing would come after that. And so I felt this automatic generational connection to my mother and I loved that. And it gave me confidence when my kids were small that I was doing the right thing. So I think that's the beauty of mirror neurons, like working (laughs) as they should. But what changed in my perception of motherhood really happened as my kids got older. They're all between 10 and 15 now. And my kids just don't need me in the same way or to the same degree that they used to. And I'm finding that this season of being a mother has a lot more open space and a lot less direct care than it used to. So I'm less mommy and more consultant. And that's opened up all these questions for me that I don't know how to navigate. Like if my mother dealt with, you know, the question, you know, what do I do with myself when my babies are grown? I didn't know about it. She what didn't did talk she do? to me about that. She went back uh, to work in the school system once we were teenagers And she worked with uh, disabled kids. And it seemed to be a little more of a practical thing. Like, here's a way to get 
you know, health insurance, <laughs> you know, oh. and that's something I can do, you know, to help contribute to the family. Um, and she was good at it and she liked it, but I didn't get the sense that it was like a dream come true or something that she, you know, has, had always wanted to do, or it was just much more practical. Like it was a job. And so I didn't see her navigate like an identity crisis or an empty nest or to try to figure out, you know, how much do I invest in myself, you know, and in my own goals and plans versus in my children. And that could partly be because I have a brother who has a disability who still lives at home. And so I think there's a sense in which both my parents, you know, and certainly my mother are still kind of, kind of in mother mode still, right? Like they're doing a lot of the same things that they would if they had a, a kid at home still. But I'm sensing this future transition from mother to matriarch, from someone who's all about care and provision to someone who you know, faces the wider world and can speak with the authority of experience under my belt. And so I'm entering a phase of motherhood that's new territory for me, and I don't really have a model for it, and so I'm scared of doing it wrong. And I've known women who can't seem to say goodbye to mothering when it's time to, and that looks a little uncomfortable to me. Are um, you letting your kids stay in your house after they're uh, <laughs> 18, 24, 26? That's a great question. We haven't had that conversation uh, okay, yet. You're not there we yet. don't even have anyone driving yet, so oh, okay, <laughs> we have a couple so years. You have a lot of time. <laughs> yes, but it's definitely a phase shift. You know, I, I have to mother myself out of a job, and you know, we're talking about human beings that used to be inside my body, and it's it's a big deal to make them, it's a big deal to raise them, and it's a big deal to figure out how to let them go. And so it's always this dance. It's always changing. And I think that a big part of motherhood is attunement with lots of entrances and exits. And so like Mary Harrington says, you know, when a baby is born, a mother is born. But then, you know, what happens to the mother when the baby's grown? Like what's a grown up mother? mother? I'm still a mother, but mother of infant is not the same thing as mother of adult children or teenagers, but there's no other word. It's still the word mother, (laughs) you know? So what is that going to look like? I don't know, but I'll find out next eight years but how about you well i'm an only child my experience of motherhood is only being mothered Mm. and not watching my mother mother anyone else Mm. really and i was never one of those kids who knew she wanted kids when she was young my cousin was like that i think my mother was like that and i think those things exist separately from social expectations i think there's just an internal sense that you know women know or girls know maybe they're wrong but that feeling exists yeah there's this particular friend I'm thinking of in graduate school who swore that she didn't want to get married and she definitely didn't want to have any kids and she got married and she had a kid. Yeah. It was almost like saying that she doesn't want it is this one who's signaling that she wants it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the woman doth protest too much. protest too much. Yeah. Um, but I'm not really surprised that I remained, as we might say, child free. My mother was home from me from, uh, from birth to about three. She like lied that I was potty trained to get me into daycare. <laughs> And then, like, attempted to potty train me in one weekend. Oh, that's how you go on. <laughs> and I, I like to joke that the best thing she did for me was something I don't remember. So it's, because, mm-hmm. I mean, my memories are more, more, you know, of her as a career person. She mm-hmm. was 27 when I was born. She went back to school, to law school when I was five. And so she's a bit unusual. You know, she's a little bit older. She already had a career. She had a master's in social work and she'd done that. And she had a young child. But she's still young enough. I mean, she would have been in her early 30s, even when she finished, mm-hmm. mid-30s, I guess, that, you know, she had a long career in law. I mean, she did, a, you know, 30-odd years in law. So, That's awesome. But I always, so my conscious, because I don't remember the birth stuff, you know, the baby stuff, like, I always knew my mother was a career woman. I've been reflecting lately on how different women's lives are, depending on the age when they have children. Hmm. Like, I don't even think the difference is whether you have children or not. I think the bigger difference is when. Because oh. you and I are around the same age. I think yeah. I might be a few years older. Mm-hmm. 
But despite the fact that you have four kids, all of them are, as you just explained, past the stage of what I call, oh, that's right, you can't go out, you have kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a clear line there. <laughs> there is a clear line there. Which is not to say that, you know, parenting responsibilities end, but they, they clearly change mm-hmm. as your children become more autonomous, more responsible in their own right. So I have friends that are younger than you who are still in that phase of they have to basically negotiate very carefully the time that they're not spending with their children because their children are young. Yeah. They started later. And so it's as if these these women mm-hmm. aren't even in my age cohort because their lives are the same. Ah. Like the, So they're close to you in age, but the stage is completely right. different. Yeah. I mean, it's... In that that world, the world of, you know, formed by their kids and other parents. and I mean, mm-hmm. these are women who are still in touch with, you know, women that they had the, their, you know, birth group with or uh, mother's group with or, you know. Yep. It's still very fresh. Mm-hmm. And that is like a world unto itself in some ways. It, it is, I think, a definite divide between... I think there's more of a divide there than there is between women like you and me. I have no children and you have older children. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it's just... There's... Yeah. I don't know. It sinks more in, in that availability way. And I'm totally glad that people who wanted kids have been able to exercise the better late than never option. Mm-hmm. But it makes me very skeptical about this emphasis on career formation before childbearing. I don't think it's a particularly woman-friendly attitude. And I think it's contributed massively to the increase in the number of childless women. Hmm. And I've watched videos and stuff that I've, some of which I've shared with you that hypothesize that a lot of these women end up that way accidentally. Yeah. They wanted to have children, but they waited too long or they couldn't find or persuade a suitable partner. There are lots of reasons. I think a lot of people think that one of the reasons that family formation has, is being delayed is economic reasons. And yeah, it's harder to buy a house, for example. So it's not as easy as it was. Not that it was easy, but mm. it's less easy than it was for our parents or grandparents. But I still think that we need to combat this notion that a woman who starts a family in her 20s can't ever, is like permanently opting out of professional right. like success. she'll never make it back in. Or it, she'll, or she'll get in or, the first place. <laughs> yeah. And I think, actually, I'm more and more beginning to believe that the opposite is true. <laughs> I think it's better to do that in your 20s than your 30s. <laughs> I mean, I, I did graduate school in my 20s, and uh, I still managed to reformulate a career from nothing in my 30s in a totally different field. I think that the the bias that we feel, and that's not to say that certain disciplines don't promote this bias, and academia is one of them. It's it's a special one. But the general workforce doesn't really, I don't think, care. I often talk about Nancy Pelosi. I think she has five kids or had five, you know. And she was Catholic. She got married young, had these kids, and she started her career in politics after they were grown. So like teenagers, out of the house. I mean, especially if you think that at that time a kid would really emancipate at 18, and Mm -hmm. that was the end. Mm -hmm. Like, they were living on their own, they were earning their own money. She starts her career in her 40s. She's second in line to the presidency at, like, what is she, 80 or whatever, you know, when she's Speaker of the House? Yeah. So, you know, gerontocracy sucks, but her example (laughs) still proves that, you know, we should should stop saying the question is, can you have kids and have a big badass career? Mm -hmm. We should say, you can, but it matters when you have them. Yeah. Like, when should I have kids so you can also have a big, badass career? And I'm more convinced that the answer to that is start young. Yeah. And why do we, I'm wondering, why do we assume that someone who has kids in her mid-20s won't have a shot at something awesome when she's 45? Because like I was saying, you and I are positioned potentially similarly in that we're both free. I have no kids. You have four, like, growing kids. Yes. Like, you have the kind of availability that a childless woman has more you have more availability than someone say right. m- my age or your age who's parenting 
a child under five. That's right. Or under 10. Absolutely. So if anything, I think it's an advantage to have teenagers at 40 rather than toddlers. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. I think women are being tricked into thinking that they will miss the boat. And when I hear these stories about companies, you know, offering coverage for egg freezing and IVF as if they are helping women achieve their goals, I'm too skeptical of that. I think they're just trying to get all they can out of younger, cheaper employees. I think it's a, I think it's a ruse. I'm with you on that. So to turn to the text, where do our readers find out what we're reading? On our Substack, redfems.substack.com, where you're listening to this. Generally, we'll post what we'll be reading for the next time right after we post a podcast episode. Yes, because, you know, you don't have to do it. It's not homework. But probably <laughs> our conversation will make a lot more sense if you've read what we've read. Yes. <laughs> Today we're talking about two books. The book about the pill, and we're looking about at a chapter of Mary Harrington's book, Feminism Against Progress. But first we're going to do the old text. Mm-hmm. It's called Right Marital Living by Ida C. Craddock. I think it was published, like, what, right? When did she, when was she, when did she? This is like 1890s, I think. Right. When did she commit suicide? 1902? Yeah, right around the turn of the century. Sad. Yeah. Yeah, her sad story is worth reading. So Right Marital Living is like this little pamphlet. It's not very long. Hmm. It's about sex. We're going to talk about sex. (laughs) (laughs) It's got some funny ideas about sex, but that's sort of why I love it. I love it. Almost more, because it's kind of, it's got all these bogus ideas in it. It's very kooky. <laughs> it's super kooky. And it, that's almost like the one of the great things about reading things that are old. Because in a hundred years, people are going to read stuff written today and be mm-hmm. like, that is kooky as, yeah. as hell. <laughs> They're going to think we're kooky. Yes. Everything gets kooky. Wait long enough. It's, it's, revel- it's revelatory, right? Because there's these distance between her priors at that time and our priors. Yeah. And I think that we can see from that that the mainstream view of contraception and legal view has changed a lot. Craddock at the time, birth control was illegal. Not just the devices, but the sort of advice. Right. right? That's the Comstock Yeah, you couldn't laws. even ma- send advice about it in the mail to someone. Right. Yeah. Because they fell under a se- obscenity law. Okay, so she writes, she's doing her due diligence here. She says, preventatives to conception are always wrong. And there never yet was a preventive invented which is certain moreover they are all forbidden by law most preventatives are distinctly injurious to one or both parties at the time many are said to injure the tissues of the woman later on if used they put no check upon passion and they are all of them abominable and degrading so Mm. i think part of that is craddock kind of trying to toe the line about the law Uh. but i also think she kind of believes it too it's part of this bigger notion that was shared by many people at the time that the purpose of ejaculation should be solely procreative. Procreative? Procreative? I don't procreative. know. Procreative. Procreative. <laughs> so that means either that sexual intercourse is always an attempt at procreation or, in Craddock's, what we might call her a spiritual utopia, that men and women learn a type of sexual union whereby ejaculation is prevented, but male orgasm is still possible. Warning, this is not medical advice. We, I don't believe this exists. I seriously <laughs> doubt that's a thing. But it's still fascinating to engage with this text because this technique epitomizes something about what we're going to talk about later with Harrington, the concept of a check upon passion. Mm-hmm. Right? So the check upon passion, what does that mean? It doesn't actually mean maybe what you think it means. It doesn't mean that you can't have pleasure. This is, I think this is my favorite part of the thing. <laughs> you, this is just, you'll see why it's funny. 
Nature has so made a woman that it takes her from half an hour to an hour after the entrance of the male organ to come to her orgasm. This is nature's indication that the man ought to wait for the woman and not to hasten through the act as is too frequently the case. A man who gets through in from three to ten minutes after entrance not only misses the most intense form of pleasure, but also fails to satisfy his wife properly. Many a case of lifelong and hopeless invalidism (laughs) in a wife is traceable to the husband's habit of hasty termination of the sexual act. Now that is a high bar, friends. (laughs) But I really appreciate this level of idealism that she has about sexual satisfaction in marriage. And this is from someone that we have no evidence that she ever actually had sex with a man. We don't know. We're never going to know. Because even if she had, she wouldn't have written it down. That's right. But I don't know how she could have written the thing she wrote without... Because some of it's pretty darn accurate. Some maybe she talked good. to a lot of people. I, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, or maybe she was having all sorts of sex and not telling... And, like, euphemizing. <laughs> Just, I, right, don't know. Right? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's really important to acknowledge here that it's assumed that in the main, women will not have had sexual relations before marriage. Such that pregnancy prevention is understood in the context of marriage. It's more like family planning, we might say. And that this context really held largely true until the early 60s when the pill became available to unmarried women. And so I think when we talk about contraception today, our context is usually the opposite. We're talking mainly about controlling fertility before marriage. Because our priors now that is acceptable and normal, maybe even desirable, for women to have sex before marriage. And this is where I think Craddock almost accidentally has some insight into the contemporary situation. Mm -hmm. She's really conscious of this idea, which has acquired this almost backward connotation in the sex-saturated, sex-positive mainstream culture, that sex is better when there is some check on the passions. Mm. Because she's only talking about married sex, you know, from our framework, oh, there's not going to be any any illegitimate children. (laughs) But she's actually, it's much more detailed than that her prescriptions for proper procreation so and she also has this theory about the significance of good sex to good relationships and this Mm -hmm. is the last quote i'm gonna read from her she says this when she's addressing the would-be critics of sharing this advice this pamphlet another objection which is sometimes raised to the spread of this knowledge is that if young unmarried people get to know the possibility of controlling the fecundating power seductions promiscuity and illicit unions of all sorts will increase In reply, I would say that I find that the average libertine is unwilling to try this method as he considers it too high for his purpose. In fact, a man who practices this method and who teaches it to the woman as he is apt to do in order to increase his own pleasure will not be a libertine, for the habit of aspiring to union with with God or with whatever else he recognizes as the ultimate force, force of the universe during the sexual act and of encouraging the woman to do so likewise has the curious psychological effect of tending to make him too loyal to that one woman to want to break with her. For this method, while it always satisfies, never satiates a man, and it renders the relation a perpetual honeymoon. Hmm. <laughs> That's pretty sex positive. Yeah. I mean, right? Very much. In, in its In its parameters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we can poo-poo the viability of ejaculation-free male orgasm all we want. Not a recommendation, people. <laughs> But we wouldn't be good feminists if we weren't ready to take seriously, because we actually have data on this, the idea that women have better sex with long-term partners. Yes. And here's another thing. Craddock takes it almost for granted that the responsibility for appropriately checked sexual relations falls on men. Mm -hmm. She might be an idealist or indeed a fantasist to believe that men can be motivated by 
this vision of religious or spiritual sex, but our culture seems to have gone to the other extreme and simply given up on men in this regard. Oh, yeah. Porn is ubiquitous, <laughs> sex is considered separable from romantic relationship, and pregnancy is solely a woman's problem, whether that's solved by the pill yep. or abortion, or even we might say single motherhood. Mm-hmm. Men don't have babies. Right. Except when they order them from surrogates, but that's another. Oof, that's another episode. <laughs> that's another episode. We will have to do an episode on that. So if Craddock were around today, she would see our culture as promoting sexual libertinism. Yeah. And she would say that that's hurting people. And it's probably letting men off the hook, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what's valuable is about her perspective today is she's not saying that sex shouldn't be frequent and pleasurable. So we can't dismiss her by throwing her in the sexual Puritan camp. Yeah. She's making an argument, granted one that seems esoteric and misguided to us because it's factually wrong, but she's making an argument about how sex can be managed for the greater satisfaction of all parties. And I dare say that despite the context of sexual liberation that surrounds the pill, we're not having an honest conversation about sexual satisfaction anymore in our culture. Mm -hmm. Our current conversation seems to assume that once the risks are gone, there are only benefits. And I think that's becoming clear that's not true, right? The things we're reading in this episode basically... Are yeah. like saying that, right? Yes. So as a traditional liberal healer, I gotta, you know, say, shout out, I've got nothing against <laughs> birth control. I think it's wonderful that women have options to enjoy sex with a reliable assurance that they will not get pregnant. But the pill isn't without trade-offs. That's what we're gonna, Sarah Hill mm-hmm. says, is her book's about that. And it's widespread adoption has absolutely altered the sexual landscape. Yes. And that goes for both men and women. And that's what Harrington is trying to talk about. So we can laugh at her, at Craddock's ideas, but we should pause to consider that she's grappling with notions, mainly the desire to have sex without procreation, that humans have always grappled with and yes. will always grapple with. She has such skepticism towards technology. And that's kind of cool, right? Because when we read her now, when we're inclined to sort of just by default believe that the answer is more better technology, she comes off as sort of based, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> even if we don't believe her specific solution... I think we're in a place now where we can appreciate the spirit of this technological skepticism. Or at least we can be more honest about the trade-offs that we're dealing with here. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you chose this text and introduced me to Craddock. I'd never heard of her. Yeah, no, Uh, she's kind of lost to history. (laughs) I mean, reading her is such a great exercise in discernment because there are these deep moral truths and wise marital advice in her work mixed up with... This quack science, like sexual magnetism and male orgasm without spilling seed. And and also, like in some of her other spiritualist works, sex is mixed up with these occult practices and probably fantasies, like her supposed marriage to the spirit named Sof, who taught her everything she knew about sex during his nightly visitations. So she's got like these sex diaries with his ghost husband <laughs> that are really weird. Right. But it, that was that was so of that time. That's right. I mean, it, it really this, was like, that, that spiritualism. spiritualism. Uh, like after the Civil War, people were wanting to like get in touch with their dead ancestors. And so like, oh, it was yeah, all right, the rage. Right, right, it was right. all the rage at the time. And, and also just the way that natural science was changing the way people thought about religion. So mm-hmm. that had kind of a, yeah. you know, insertion point <laughs> into it. Mm-hmm. So it's very, I mean, it's great you know, to talk about like questioning your priors. Right. Like to get into that mindset and be like, what did she think was normal and obvious and right. you know, and versus what we think? Right. <laughs> it's really fascinating. So I just think it's a great it's great to spend time with a thinker like her. It's really fruitful because it primes us to expect that we can we can also have some really great ideas and be totally wrong on other things at the same time. You know, just like she was. <laughs> you know, and not know it. And that's just humbling to remember. So my, my first quote from Craddock is a short one. 
In the marital relation, there are two physiological functions, the love function and the parental function. These two functions are not always exercised conjointly. She wishes. (laughs) (laughs) That's what she says. So she starts off with this description of the dual purposes of sex or the marital relation. So obviously sex and marriage are intertwined for her. We're going to give her that one. And interestingly, neither of them is pleasure per se. Of course, sex involves pleasure, but the purpose, the function is love and parenthood. And she maintains that these are separable, that it's possible, even frequently desirable, for spouses to come together for the sake of love at a time when they should not have a child, especially for the woman's sake. And in emphasizing sex for the purpose of loving connection and even spiritual ecstasy, while at the same time denouncing all forms of contraception, she places the entire burden of preventing pregnancy on men's sexual self-control by not ejaculating. And she elevates the significance of the wife's pleasure and very explicitly teaches men how to be good to their wives, how to take time and how to treat them right. It, it just fascinates me that Craddock was hounded and imprisoned at various points in her life for mailing, quote unquote, obscene literature to married couples. And yet today, her most basic advice on what I would call sexual courtesy or how can men avoid being selfish jerks in the bedroom <laughs> is chapter one in any Christian book on sex and marriage. And I've read plenty. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That is is probably a serious misunderstanding between Mm -hmm. uh, the religious and the (laughs) non-religious. Like, Craddock's position on sensitivity to wives' bodies and needs is now totally assumed by both Catholics and Protestants as morally upright. Like, that's how it should be. I'm not saying that they got it from her. I mean, most people don't know anything about her. But on these points, they certainly agree. I mean, so talk about priors. Like, what what is obvious to us now was obscene to many people in the late 1800s. Well, I think it comes out, like, she got it from the longer, I think she might have gotten it from the longer religious tradition. Mm. Hmm. I mean, she's trying to innovate in a way and say we can control when we have children, which is something that in a precise language, the church would not have been uh-huh. quite down with. Mm-hmm. So, but I think she that's gets true. it from, she, I think she certainly gets the respect yes. from that's that present kind of tradition. In the Christian tradition. Yeah. It very much is, yeah. So to bring it a, a little further forward, in, in 1968, shortly after the pill came to prominence, uh, Pope Paul VI wrote Humana Vitae, which means on human life, in which he restated the church's long-standing rejection of contraception. And he actually used language uh, similar to Craddock about the purposes of sex, but he denied their divisibility, whereas she thought Yeah, that seems very Catholic mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Like he spoke <laughs> of the inseparable connection willed by God and which man may not break on his own initiative between the two significances of the conjugal act, the unitive significance and the procreative significance, which is just like Craddock's mm-hmm. love function and parenting right. function, right? She wants to insert a little, like... Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Pope goes on to say that couples can, quote, take into account the natural rhythms imminent in the generative functions and make use of marriage during infertile times only and in this way regulate births without offending Christian moral principles. In other words, he's saying you can have sex during the luteal phase of a woman's cycle when it's impossible to get pregnant and that's not considered to be birth control by the church. Like they would object to that being called birth control, which is interesting. Um, yeah, that sounds uh, like another loophole. <laughs> it's like, is that a loophole? <laughs> I mean, it's not a loophole, but it's not. It's it's complicated yeah. because I see 
Oh, God. I don't yeah. even know. Go on. <laughs> and, you know, similar to Craddock, uh, this, the church's approach here puts the burden of spacing and preventing births primarily on the husband's ability yes. to exercise self-mastery and consideration of his wife's needs, but it's also on the wife, too, since it means foregoing sex when she's likely to feel the sexiest, which is when she's ovulating, <laughs> which is something Craddock talks about. Like, yeah, definitely. She's like, you know, women like it most at this certain time, and, you know, yeah, she talks all about that. But as G.K. Chesterton put it, you know, the normal and real birth control is called self-control. Yeah, and that's and that, definitely been the church's perspective. Well, and that's been history. that was general mainstream society was like. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is when you say don't have sex till marriage. It's saying yeah. don't get pregnant. Right. <laughs> it's not really about don't have sex. Uh, it's about if you assume that sex is very likely to lead to pregnancy, because there's mm-hmm. not because there is no way to sort of you know yeah, thread that needle or whatever separate mm-hmm. the two. So that's a, it's a point of commonality and a key takeaway from my read of Craddock that despite her quack science and her occultist spiritualism, she expects men and women to be capable of mastering their passions subsumed under a spiritual purpose and to do so out of love for one another. No devices required, no pills required. She has this attitude of, with some practice, you can do this. Now, will her particular technique work? No. no. Do not try this at home. Do not try this at home. <laughs> or try it, but use birth control. <laughs> but does her general approach of self-mastery have merit? I think it does. I definitely agree. Yeah. But both Craddock and the Catholic approaches assume marriage, or at least a high level of commitment and care from an involved male. This approach won't fly in hookup culture, whereas obviously the pill fits right in. So. Right. All right, quote number two. For a wife to submit to genital union with her husband when she does not desire it is to degrade herself so that she has no call to draw her garments aside from the harlot in the street. Indeed, the wife who allows her body to be used as a convenience for her husband has degraded herself below even the harlot. For the harlot leases her body for ten minutes or for two hours or for a night, and she is free to refuse embraces which displease her. But the wife leases her body for a lifetime. And she mistakenly imagines that she dare not refuse any embrace of her husband's, however repulsive to her finer sensibilities. And so, year by year, she coarsens and degrades the holy estate of matrimony. And that quote really struck me because while in other sections she comes out very strongly against male obliviousness and cruelty, here she's calling women to stick up for themselves, to find their no, to draw boundaries, and to feel proud of those boundaries rather than feel guilty. And that's huge. I mean... This is consent. She's saying that there needs to be consent for sex within marriage. And that would have not even been a legal concept. No, that wasn't a thing. And like, she's saying that the fact of being married itself is not a sign of continuous tacit consent. And that it's better for both the wife and the husband if she can decline at will. And if he has to put in some effort to gain her enthusiastic participation, which she, in some of her work, she's trying to teach him how to do that. Here's how to make her want it, you know? Mm -hmm. So she doesn't have to say no, because you're such, you're such a jerk. Well, believe it or not, this is still a problem today in some conservative Christian circles where there's this strong emphasis on what's called male headship, which I think used to be much more common and was probably one of the priors that, that Craddock's readers held. Well, and certainly the law would have been on that side. Yes, for sure. For there was sure. no concept of marital rape. Right. And it's this idea that the husband is the head of the house and the head of his wife, and that if he wants to have sex, she has to give it to him because her body belongs to him. 
Now, technically, people who hold this position today will say that this goes both ways and that he belongs to her, too, and that she is allowed to have her conjugal rights, you know, just as much as he gets to have his. But the supposed parity there, it obscures the average statistical differences between the intensity of sexual desire in men versus that in women. Not to mention the strength differences. That's right. And absolutely. And so on a functional level, what is meant by the passages that will be referred to in scripture about this, what's meant to be, I think, a message of mutuality. Don't withhold sex from one another without a good reason. You know, be considerate of your spouse, I think is the point. It can sadly be perverted into a license for men to have it whenever they want it. And I've heard plenty of women in Christian circles today say that they struggle with guilt over saying not tonight, you know, or that there are men who think not tonight, honey, is a form of disrespect or withholding, you know, and will draw on that scripture verse to be like, oh, you're not supposed to right. say no, right. you know, and it becomes this this pressure. And so I found myself just cheering Craddock on at this section because she's trying to make the women take responsibility for their own capacity to consent. She's saying you can say yes or no, but don't say yes when you mean no or you're degrading your marriage. And while that may sound a little harsh, we need to remember that Craddock is also trying to teach men how to make love to their wives so the women will want it. And she's got this joint message of courtesy on the part of men and true consent on the part of women. And while I think that this message has really stuck with us culturally as a principle within marriage and is certainly the ideal... Next page. ...within (laughs) the kind of Christianity I grew up in, (laughs) I think it's been largely rejected within our porn-saturated premarital hookup culture, which is becoming increasingly violent and non-consensual or at least consent isn't a sufficient framework for making sex good for women all right quote three it is sometimes objected that it is unwise to spread among married people the knowledge which is set forth in the foregoing pages as they would straight away cease to beget children and so the human race would die out this objection shows how little the differences in the mental attitude of men and women toward the marriage relation are understood The average woman longs with all the intensity of her nature to have a child or children by the man whom she loves at some time in her life. But it is for her to choose the fitting time. A woman who is made pregnant against her will naturally resents the outrage. And I think think Craddock is right again that if people learn a technique of sexual self-mastery and are taught how to be genuinely loving to one another in bed, that's not going to make them stop having kids. I don't think. I mean, most women do want to have children with the man they love, assuming that he treats them right. And while it's not universal or mandatory, I think it's certainly natural to want to have children. And growing in self-control out of love for another, you know, growing in virtue, won't remove this natural desire for children. And this shows that whatever it is that Craddock is proposing, it's not the same thing as, say, the pill or other contraceptives. Because the data shows that when women's bodies are viewed as being default infertile, then the birth rate does indeed go down for a variety of reasons, which we'll get to in the work of Hill and Harrington. So it isn't the cultivating of what Craddock calls the love function that ruins the parenthood function. I think it's the elevation of sterile pleasure of like low cost, low commitment sex. That's what ruins the parenthood function and lowers the birth rate. So, and, and speaking from a more conservative perspective here, I think there's a real difference between a committed married couple using contraception to space out or limit children according to their means, which can be very good for women, and which was Dr. Hill's experience, and then people using contraception before or outside of marriage in the pursuit of sterile pleasure. That use of contraception ends up being bad for women in the long run because of the way it undermines what I've called sexual courtesy on the part of men. Right? The pill creates a milieu in which unmarried men can be cads while avoiding the stigma for it, and in which unmarried women say yes to sex, not out of a desire for intimacy, but you know, to avoid being perceived as rude or a prude. And that's a bad deal for women. And so I think 
the nature of what contraception is, of what it's doing, changes based on its context. You know, delaying or spacing children in a marriage is not the same action or intention as promiscuity without consequences. So when talking about contraception, whether it's good for women or not, we have to specify the context. I think it's one of those situations where in any given encounter, you could argue that contraception is useful, but in the in the sort of broad range of what that means when you have at scale women always taking away that that risk of pregnancy or the interest in pregnancy at scale it changes something yes which is interesting because we often this is often phrased in terms of like an individual rights thing Mm. and at that level i'm like totally comfortable yes with that but then look what's the broad impact of all these individuals exercising those rights that's yeah. the that's the harder question to look at. Very tricky. Okay, so speaking of, uh, shall we say, uh, consequences at scale, mm-hmm. we now turn to This Is Your Brain on Birth Control by Sarah Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this book kind of blew my mind. <laughs> I kind of, I really genuinely wish that had been general knowledge when I started taking hormonal birth control, probably at, I don't honestly have a very good memory, but probably mm-hmm. pretty early in my teens. Yeah. It, it, it's much more complicated decision than just I won't get pregnant if I take this Mm -hmm. but that's really how I thought about it and it's probably not without a broader shift it's not going to sway a lot of young women or their should we say their mothers Mm -hmm. in a culture where it really is taken for granted that sex without the context of marriage and the consequence of pregnancy is a right r-i-g-r-i-g-h-t yeah and maybe even a right r-i-t-e of passage I mean, I certainly grew up in a milieu where the idea of waiting until marriage would have been dismissed as a fringe and very religious idea. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. Right? That's so right? different. All right? It, I'm the fringe. <laughs> I, well, yeah, right? And, and, I, and I never believed, and I still don't, to be perfectly honest, that there's something special about virginity. I mean, I didn't grow up in the, in the era of sex work is work and don't kink shame. And I think it's wrong to think of these things as opposites because I just think mm-hmm. they're both kind of cul-de-sacs. Huh. Where people, where discussion goes to sort of die, and it's not very helpful. But I do think that first sexual activity is a milestone in a person's life, and should be carefully considered. Mm-hmm. But I think more often than not, the context in which female purity is emphasized are misogynist ones. Not mm-hmm. to say that the porn context is not a misogynist right. one, also a misogynist right. one, but yes. that was still to come, you know, uh-huh. the pornification. I only saw... The, the extreme religious people as being anti-woman and the rest of us being totally normal. Uh, I yeah. didn't see, you know, that, that <laughs> was the framework, going. to be totally honest about my priors. So even if you start from a sex is natural place, it doesn't tell you what you should aim for. It doesn't help you figure out what it means for you. So it was super clear when I, when I grew up was getting pregnant was an unacceptable outcome because it was viewed not just as the derailing of an assumed educational trajectory, but also the kind of failure of taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. So the idea that pregnancy at a young age and outside of marriage is a kind of failure, a misfortune. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I understand now that that's a very, very class-based notion. Huh. But that was the class milieu in which I grew yeah. up. I had a good friend later in life who got pregnant at 16, had her son at 17. Her family was Catholic. Mm-hmm. So that framework, where there's no sex ed and no consideration of abortion, it's just such a different paradigm. Mm-hmm. One that I had basically zero exposure to as a younger woman. And the pill was a part of the paradigm that told you that sex was totally fine in any kind of relationship, but childbearing should be postponed until marriage. And the pill was what made that progression, that responsibility plan possible. Mm -hmm. So, which is a long way around of saying I never understood to be the pill to be a drug that had the potential to change who I was. Uh Uh-huh. 
I don't think I ever had this notion that it's important to discover as a woman what you feel like at different times in your menstrual cycle, how that matters for the relationships you then pursue. Yeah. I mean, it would really take some effort of imagination to picture a world in which that knowledge was viewed as important enough to create a social environment where women would forgo potentially procreative sexual activity because they were still figuring out who they were as fertile women. Uh-huh. Having sex, finding someone you want to have sex with who also wants to have sex with you is a major part of what our culture considers a sign of adjustment, of success. At least in the milieu I'm talking about. So normal people have sex would, would be like the one way that we can characterize <laughs> my upbringing, right? No. And what teenager doesn't want to be normal? Yeah. You can't tell a teenager when you're my age you'll have a much better perspective on the role of sex <laughs> in, in relationships in life and then expect that girl to nod her head and drop out of the pill because she suddenly sees the wisdom of getting to know herself to use Hill's term as a natural cycling woman. Like, can you imagine the song? You make me feel like a natural cycling woman, right? I mean, that's crazy. I mean, that, that that's great. I mean, yes, do I want that world? Maybe. But do I think that world is really gettable? Not without considerable shifts. Yeah. So, and we discussed this when we were prepping this episode... Hill definitely seems to share that bias that I grew up with. Namely, that pregnancy is a potential disaster for a woman's higher education and career. She's just... We're just both in that sort of, like, you know, this is the way that life... This is the trajectory that life goes for a young woman. Okay. So, to turn to a few more specific points. So, drawing in Harrington here, because I think um, Hill's statement about what the pill changes for women is super relevant. Harrington says that the pill was the first transhumanist technology because it didn't cure a disease... It didn't restore a lost function. It changed the natural function to a desired function. It changed the default state of female fertility, post-monarchy, from on to off. Yeah, that's huge. And you can't do that without changing everything. And for Hill, when she talks about everything, she talks about, you know, the body and the brain. She says, the brain and the rest of the body are too flush with hormone receptors for the pill not to change women. And it's not just the areas of the brain and body that are directly responsible for orchestrating your cycles and coordinating pregnancy. We're talking about areas of the brain that are responsible for things like emotional processing, social interactions, attention, learning, memory, facial recognition, self-control, eating behavior, and language processing. And so basically what she's saying, to use a really graduate school term here, is the pill becomes an agent of self-fashioning. I, I like it because it describes this idea that we're aware that we can change ourselves, and that's usually viewed as a good thing, right? So that's so it's, it captures that awareness, which is important. And she she uses this language that's really revelatory in that way. She discusses when she's discussing the sexiness boost that some research links to being off the pill. Uh, Hill says this information is worth knowing when it comes to the pill. You can use it to help make you into the version of yourself. That you most want to be. So that's like super interesting language because I had never, ever, ever, and I've, I have used a lot of hormonal birth control (laughs) to stay child free. Let's just get that clear. I had never, ever considered the pill from this perspective, Mm -hmm. Uh, or just hormone hormonal manipulation in general. I I, maybe that's because this research didn't exist, or because Mm -hmm. maybe it did and nobody talked about it. But I also think that this language reflects a bit of a sea change in our attitudes about what we might call broadly medicalized identity. Yeah. Right? She uses this language because it's in the zeitgeist. You know, mainly, of course, as a part of the movement to not just destigmatize, but also normalize cross-sex identification. Biology is real, but Hill wants to, or maybe needs to, 
make nice. So she frames it as, shall we say, more delimiting than limiting. Hmm. So there's, and there's this brief section, I don't know if you like rolled your eyes at this, but yes, there's this brief section at the end of the introduction oh. entitled, for those of you who don't color inside the lines, and this is what that section, part of what that section says, most of the research I discuss in this book is focused exclusively on the experiences of heterosexual cisgender women, because they are typically the people who go on the birth control pill. Although some lesbian women, as well as transgendered women and men, go on the pill for reasons other than pregnancy prevention, research hasn't quite caught up with this yet. If you are a reader who doesn't happen to fall into the very narrow category of humans that researchers typically study when it comes to the pill, this doesn't mean your experiences don't matter. They do. Okay, so... WTH, the very <laughs> narrow category of humans that researchers typically study in relationship to the pill. Heterosexual women are a very narrow category. Yeah, we just call her inside the No, lines. we're not. I mean, like, <laughs> women are half the population, slightly more. Yeah. Most women are heterosexual. So, like, huh? And then narrow, right? Narrow. Like, she's, she's trying to say, like, we color inside the lines. Yeah. We're unexciting. We're yeah. uniform. <laughs> Don't the people this is attempting to mollify feel the palpable pandering here? Yes, yeah. Like, it's palpable <laughs> pandering. It's That's gross. And I can't stand these, like, concessions to gender woo yeah. in all these books. Because it's in yeah. every book. There was this book, um, oh, God, it has such a great title. It's about perimenopause and menopause called, like, um, oh, it has some hilarious title, like, what you know, what the hell is this? Or it's just, it's just a really catchy title. And I picked it up and I'm like on page two and she's like, I'm non binary, but and I was like, Okay. Forget it. <laughs> like I can't trust someone to right. tell me something about biology yeah. if they have this overlaying belief that like uh, there's this other thing that makes it somehow <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, maybe we need to do the Craddock on that and be yeah. like, I don't yeah. know. But, it's, I mean, it's their version of spiritual cultism. It kind of is. It kind of is. Yeah, I knew, you'd, I knew you'd get that. I knew you'd pick that up. But yeah. to finish the point, I started. Seeing the pill as one of many possible drugs in one's transhuman toolkit is positively freaky. Uh, yeah. Right? I've probably told you this before, but it's creepy in the same way that Planned Parenthood's motto, My Body, My Choice... Which used to just mean I, and not the state, can decide whether I can terminate a pregnancy. And I'm, I'm not going to change my mind on that. I think that's the right thing. Has now That motto has now taken mm-hmm. this whole other macabre sense of, I can become a girl or a guy. I can go through puberty or not. Yeah. And, yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> there is, I looked this up because I heard about it and I want to look it up. There is a case study on a young woman... I'll put this in the show notes, who wanted to remain on puberty blockers indefinitely as part of her non-binary identity. And the beginning of the abstract, I have to read this because it's just too precious. In this article, we analyzed the novel case of Phoenix, a non-binary adult requesting ongoing puberty suppression, OPS. There's there's an acronym for it. Gets his acronym. To permanently prevent the development of secondary sex characteristics as a way of affirming their gender identity. We argue that the aim of OPS is consistent with the proper goals of medicine to promote well-being and therefore could ethically be offered to non-binary adults in principle. Are these people serious? <laughs> oh my gosh. 
Like, does never going through puberty and being on drugs with known serious side effects really fall under the proper goals of medicine to promote well-being? That is not medicine. <laughs> I think we are utterly losing the plot here about the proper role of medicine. And the madness people are, I think, are, subtly, are, are starting to wake up to this. This madness impacts women disproportionately. Be it bearing the trade-offs of hormonal birth control or falling under the craze of you know, this craze to identify out of womanhood Mm -hmm. and be medically harmed and irreversibly damaged. You have to hope that when this scandal is finally recognized for what it is, and did you know it's the cover story on The Economist? No, I haven't seen that. Like, The Economist, as you probably know, Mm -hmm. is is, uh, published in in the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, literally the cover is on how America is doing this wrong. Because a lot of European countries are turning back from childhood transition. Mm -hmm. But America's just like, you know, it's dividing into the red and the blue. It's become the new abortion debate, really. Maybe when this scandal is recognized for what it is, there will also be an opportunity for some soul-searching about the much broader use of artificial hormones in young women. Mm. (laughs) The pill. Yes. Right? So I'm never going to be in favor of outlawing abortion or contraception. But I think we could reframe, nonetheless, the way we think about the issue of default female non-fertility. And we could offer young women, and young men for that matter, a broader set of options other than wait until marriage on the one hand and the pill solves everything on the other. We need to talk more about intimacy and less about identity. Yeah. I'd say. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, I think... You know, more on more on intimacy, less on identity, more about like what's good for relationships and less about me, myself, and I through tech. <laughs> and I agree with you that framing the question as abstinence versus the magic pill is a false choice. You know, I think I think you can teach premarital abstinence in smaller subcultures, like at a family or in a religious community, and it can stick. It can work. I got married as a virgin and many of my Christian friends did too, but for the broader culture, I think I think that asking the question, you know, what do women really want is going to land you in a position like Louise Perry in her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, where she has a chapter titled Loveless Sex is Not Empowering. Mm, Yeah. You know, and there's this broader shift towards women only having sex when there's love and respect present. Like if we can shift to that, then the conversation about contraception can become a lot more nuanced and honest. And maybe the conversation about what sex means can become more honest because Mm. I mean I don't know where I read this but traditionally in say like the way back land of the 19th century you could spend the night with your prospective beau but the rule was you just uh, didn't take your clothes off so it's like, yeah, it wasn't like a about a pro- like bundling, like they would right. bundle yes. them up in sacks. Yes. And yes. so like no sex is happening, but I don't know, maybe but they're like, kissing or third base. Cuddling. I mean, right. Like, I mean, it, it wasn't so much driven by this notion of ignorance or purity or it wasn't as if people just didn't think young people were horny. Uh-huh. Like that wasn't the context. Right. It was, you could be as horny as you want, as long as you know where the boundary is. Right. Draw the line somewhere. Yeah. Draw the line before you're going to get get the woman yeah. pregnant, specifically. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's somewhere. Well, that's definitely, like, I mean, I went to a Christian college, and that was always the conversation. It was like, how far are you allowed to go with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Right. Like, and, you know, and people would, you know, go to the professor's office and ask the teacher, like, how, how far am I allowed to go? You know, and, and so... Yeah, I mean, but it was this it was this awareness of, like, there is a boundary line, and we don't want to break it, and yet, but it was always, like, pushing, pushing, mm-hmm. and how about, can I go this far, can mm-hmm. I go this, you know? And maybe it's going to be different for different people. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so, this is your brain on birth control. I, I liked the book, I learned a lot from it, but I honestly kept thinking, as I was reading it, I was like, 
whew, dodge that bullet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like, had the opposite oh. feeling, which is like, uh. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Too late for me. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, because the setting that I grew up in did not encourage the use of the pill because it was seen as a potential abortifacient. So you mean like even for people who are not having sex? Like if you were just like say hypothetical. Sure. Like if someone was using it, was not having sex, but was using it to like say regulate, you know, severe no, pain. No, that wouldn't have been a problem. Okay. That wouldn't have been a problem. No, it was only the idea. If as, it was kind of used as medicine, that's totally different okay. than if you're using it to avoid pregnancy. You know, because a lot of Protestants don't have a problem at all with birth control in general, or like with contraception in general, but they have a problem with abortion. And so if a particular contraception would function like it, it, it could abort a fertilized egg, then that was like, okay, then that's, right. that's okay. in the wrong category. Yeah, so all that's... those subtleties are going to be <laughs> lost on me, but I so, get it. Yeah. So, and I was also raised with the assumption that the first time you have sex is on your wedding night, and if you don't marry, you don't have sex. So that was just the... Those were the assumptions in my community. Well, that's an incentive to get married if I ever heard one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and and typically I think Christians would... I knew so many, you know, Christian kids who got married, like, in college, which is what I did, or, like, right out of college. Graduate, next day is your wedding. And this is part of the reason. Getting married young was connected with... Because we're we're not having sex, but we really want to have sex. And so it it motivated getting married younger and starting families younger because you were... Horny! Yeah, (laughs) abstaining and horny, yes. (laughs) So, so I never seriously considered the pill, even though, you know, contraception in general, it was permitted and expected in evangelical circles if you were getting married. And so that is a a way that Protestants and Catholics are quite different. Catholics would see it as wrong in general. And in my evangelical circles, it definitely had this feeling, and maybe the class thing too, of what you said of like, well, if you're going to be responsible, then you have to be using Well, that's clearly where my sort of atheist adjacent... Mm culture comes from it comes from protestantism there's oh, right. no i have no doubt that's in my right. mind because oh, protestantism yeah. is the majority religion in the country yeah you know it comes uh-huh. from that okay that's where so like, y'all are protestants who've lost the faith basically well, but the same mood i have an excuse because <laughs> i'm jewish but that's like right. the, it's that same that, that liberal milieu is is yes. that protestant milieu that's a great point yeah. it absolutely is that okay yeah my evangelical protestant friends won't like hearing that <laughs> no but it's true <laughs> but that's true Okay. Because I don't think of Protestantism in that way as evangelical. Uh-huh. Okay. Like, I think of it as, like, just as the mainline, the default, mainline. liberal. Used to be mm-hmm. liberal background. Now that's totally different since the 60s. Okay. But pre-60s, that right. was something that Protestant culture and non-Protestant cultures, I think, shared as a sort of that's background right. baseline. This class-based, responsibility, yes. parenting kind of ethos. Totally. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And it oh, makes, and that's why you get this sort of sense, like, Protestants, some Protestants, right, looking sort of, like, askance at... Catholic families with their 10 kids. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, totally. Like, that's a real prejudice. Oh, it is. That's Very much thing. so. Like, yeah. it's not, oh, and that's where that comes like, from. Too much flesh over there. Too uh, much body. Uh, Whether it's Eucharist or babies. It's just too much, too much, too many bodies over there. Exactly. Sure. There yeah. you go. That's interesting. So, so, but even so, I always assumed that surprise pregnancies were not that uncommon. You know, even if folks took preventative measures. What do you mean measures. by surprise? Well, like... <laughs> Well, in the sense of like, you know, I know so many people who are on one, using one form of contraception or another oh, and yeah. get pregnant anyway. Oh, yeah. Like, you, I have a friend on the pill who had her last child on the pill. Oh, really? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, like, I guess we're having another kid. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And like, and that was also part of my assumption too, was that you could try to prevent, but if you're having sex, it, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. It's always a possibility. Yeah. And so I never had this idea that contraception would be this like sure thing that okay. you could rely on. I always was like, it's a low try, but, okay. you know, always like, well, you know, it can happen. Right. And in the context of a marriage, that's acceptable, I yes. would say. Right. It's an Certainly acceptable different. risk. Yeah. 
And so from my conservative Christian background, which was against abortion, there was this attitude that children are a gift from God. And if you get surprised with one, then that's just something you have to adapt to. You just roll with it. You know, that's what love does. You make room to, you know, welcome the stranger, whether he or she, you know, shows up cold and dirty on your doorstep or warm and tiny in your womb, hospitality to the stranger. You know, that's, that's the frame in which pregnancy is viewed. And so that's the background that I brought to reading Hill's book. So the quote I'm going to give from her. Women's fertility is a cruel and uncaring force. It generally peaks in our early 20s when most of us still don't have a clue what we're doing and feel like we have no business bringing life into the world and falls off a cliff right around the time when we finally have our shit together at 35. And this can be a tricky thing to have to navigate in a world where the age of first marriage keeps getting pushed back. For the first time in history, there are now more women in their 30s having babies than there are women in their 20s or younger having babies. This is remarkable and worth pausing to think about. Although the trend of delaying motherhood until educational and career goals have been met has been hugely instrumental in women's success in the workplace, this has been less than amazing for women's fertility. When women delay childbearing, it comes at the risk of not being able to conceive once they're ready for children. And there's little doubt that the pill, by changing the age at which women are marrying and having children, has played a key role in the increasing need for the use of reproductive technology in people's quest to become parents. As it goes with the pill, so it goes with IVF. So I have two points that I want to make from her words here. First, you know, when we use technology to tinker with our evolved biology and sexuality, you know, using contraception to delay parenthood past our prime, you know, we introduce the market into this primordial fundamental human relationship of the family. You know, and if we bring the market into pregnancy prevention, of course, we'll end up bringing the market into pregnancy creation, you know, through IVF, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy. And when we split procreation in half to get sex without babies when we're young for the sake of pleasure, we inevitably split procreation in half when we're old and we end up paying to make babies without the fun of sex that should make them. And so the market gets its hands into all these little fragments of what used to be a husband and a wife making love and procreating their own child from that love. The fact that what Harrington calls transhumanist technology begets more technology shouldn't surprise us. And perhaps you're a person who feels totally fine about the pill and other contraceptives, but has concerns about, say, the exploitation of women through surrogacy or egg donation, or concerns about the scandal of hundreds of children being created from the sperm of one donor, leading to potentially incestuous relationships by accident, because people who live in the same area may actually be half-siblings and they don't know it then you need to recognize that the intentional infertility of contraceptive youthfulness is actually creating the quote-unquote need for questionable technologies that fix the unintentional infertility of people in their 30s and 40s. That this first tech is creating the problems, you know, that the second tech is trying to fix. And so if you don't like the second, it's like, well, you also got to question the thing that's creating that space. So like Hill says, as it goes with the pill, so it goes with IVF. And I would add with all the other techno-sex substitutes for making babies. I also want to call attention to one of Hill's priors in that quote. She says that fertility generally peaks in our early 20s when most of us still don't have a clue what we're doing and feel like we have no business bringing life into the world and then falls off a cliff right around the time when we finally have our shit together at 35. So that sentence actually made me mad. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I was like, Well, it shows that she's completely oblivious of, of, yeah. of another way of doing it. Right, right. It's a very class-based bias. I yes. Mean, that's, yeah. That's... Yeah, that's the yeah. bias of someone like me. That the idea that you can't possibly have a kid before you're done with, you know, your higher education. Right. You know. Right. And like I I just want to push back on it, you know, from my own personal experience. So 
I got married at 20. I had my first child at 26, which was later than I wanted to, but I had to finish college, and then I worked for a few years to put my husband through grad school. But because we got married so young, we got to have, you know, the experience of six years of marriage to enable us to, as Hill says, get our shit together. <laughs> so I actually looked it up in Merriam-Webster. I can't believe it's an addiction. <laughs> it is. I it honestly is. can't believe it. Getting that. your shit together means to begin to live one's life in a responsible and mature way. <laughs> and that is most definitely what marriage required of me. You know, it facilitated my maturation and my capacity to be responsible, selfless, trustworthy, and loving. Now, I don't know what Hill thinks is the process by which a person, you know, gets their shit together, but apparently she doesn't think marriage is part of that process. I'm going to guess that might be because she might frame marriage in either big romance or self-expressive terms, which we talked about in episode one. I mean, I, I entered into marriage under the assumption of a lifelong covenant of solidarity with no escape hatch. And that kind of commitment has, you know, it's just jumping right into the deep end. You know, like it has the potential to mature you very quickly. And I think it can make you capable of parenthood. I wanted to read a little bit from one of my favorite online writers, uh, Mark Barnes of New Polity. And he writes the following about marriage. I think it's a great description of the way that one can indeed get their shit together and thus be capable of welcoming a child into the world long before the age of 35 when fertility wanes. And he writes, Marriage leaps for virtue like a man leaping for a moving train. It takes two people with their sin, vice, and striving for perfection and binds them together saying, You have up to this point sinned and the world has gone on unperturbed, lied, and no one has been reduced to tears amassed a thousand occasions of wrath, pride, and petty selfishness, and no one suffered for it. Now you will marry. Now all your hardness of heart will knock up against the heart of another. Now that tone, the one you do not even realize you take, will ring in the ears of another. Now the demonic horns you grow in secret will poke and prod the one with whom you share bed and bathroom. You are married. You stand revealed, naked, utterly seen through after a few weeks' honeymoon. Your vices now intimately related to a flesh that feels them and a soul that suffers them. Every callus that crusts over your conscience has become so much roughness rubbing against another. Who will protest the fact? Marriage makes virtue possible by making it necessary. The married man is not virtuous because he would like to be, but because <laughs> he has freely chosen a situation in which the lack of virtue means hell, instant hell. Marriage is a deliberate entering into a state of existence whose continued life depends on continued love. As such, it is a sort of suicide pact. Let us, you and I, enter into such and such a contract by which the happiness of each becomes utterly dependent on a gift that neither can assure will, in fact, keep coming. That is, love. Let us increase the likelihood of mutual destruction by an infinite degree. Let us make sin, which once meant nothing, mean hurt and mean it right away. It is all well and good to preach the virtuous life, but preach the married life, and the necessity of the virtuous life will become as clear as a slap in the face. And I just think that's dead on right. It's and beautiful. Too. It is beautiful. It lines up exactly with my experience of marriage. You can't get away with anything when you're married. You know, it all, all your sins become harms to other people. And, and I think being in that situation is a perfect preparation for parenthood. So, all right, enough about getting your shit together. Next quote, being protected from pregnancy and having a fulfilling sex life should not be mutually exclusive. <laughs> I can't wait to hear you react to that one. So, so this is one of Hill's assertions that isn't scientific. 
It's not backed up by evidence or any of the many research studies she shares in the book. And she shares a lot, and the book is super scientific, which is great. But this statement, this is axiomatic for her. It's an assumption that I think probably most modern Americans share. But it's one of those, I want to have my cake and eat it too, aspirations that doesn't match up very nicely with biology or with reality. Well, it's, it's one of those things that men enjoy a priori. Ah. I think it's... Oh, that's part of what's behind it. But go on. <gasps> You're right. A man can say it's an, that. It's an equalizing thing, right? Yes. Uh, that's, I think so that's where a lot of the rub is, is. Men and women can, can and should be interchangeable. Or women can should be able to have, have the sexual same experience yes. like men. Like a man can literally, he permanently avoids pregnancy risk. Right. A priori. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. Thank you for saying that. That's uh-huh. so right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so he'll saying that you should be able to have all the fulfilling sex you want without fear of pregnancy. In other words, the universe should allow you to have sex without consequences. And I just want to say, says who? <laughs> you says know, feminism. That's right. Why do you think you get to have that? Like, who promised that to you? Liberal feminists. <laughs> that just sounds like straight up mar- a marketing slogan to it me. It is marketing. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's wishful it's wishful thinking. Yeah. And it's, it's contraceptive propaganda. Oh, you know, I like that. It's like, it's framed almost as a right, but it's like, it's a right that requires technology. And who's providing the technology? Who gets paid? Who benefits from that, exactly. right? Like so yeah. much of Hill's book, her, so much of her book is really fantastic. It's very carefully written. It's both technical and informative and even funny at times. I didn't like the funny, but that's just me. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mind it. it, but it did feel a little bit like throwing a bone. Like she could have been more serious and it would have been fine. But, <laughs> but, and I, and I recommend people read it. Especially if you've been on the pill. Yes, for sure. Um, but even with all of that knowledge that she's got and like all the cautions that she provides about the trade-offs of being on the pill... She's working from this unexamined assumption that being protected from pregnancy and having a fulfilling sex life should not be mutually exclusive. And this prior of hers makes children, especially surprise babies, into a disaster that may not only ruin your sex life, but ruin your life in general. And I don't buy that. You know, I think that life is full of surprises and very little of life is actually under our control. And so approaching sex as if it were either a right or something that we could manage through technology is so hubristic. I mean, I I think... Sex and procreation are very powerful and fundamentally mysterious, and they both require an attitude of humility on our part. I think most cultures up until now viewed sex and procreation as something sacred that required taboos and stigmas and special rituals and protections. And I'm not saying that we have to go back to all of that, but some sense of the sacred is called for here. And I think that technology and market forces are at root opposed to the sacred. Yeah, the sacred cannot be monetized. No. Yeah, I mean, and so the, the more we try to control sex and procreation through market-driven technology, rather than, say, by developing proper self-control and reverence, the more we desacralize sex and harm a key aspect of our humanness. So the conversation about contraception should not just be solely about side effects and science, although that's important. It's also philosophical. It's about our human nature. And I think that everyone should examine their priors about human nature and about sex and just notice what, for you, goes without saying. Definitely. And then say it out loud to yourself and see whether or not it sounds like it's too good to be true. <laughs> the test. Like, does it sound like marketing? <laughs> because you may be unconsciously believing a slogan, you know, from somewhere, who knows where, you know, that actually hurts you and that lines someone else's pocket. And it's worth knowing if you have some of those things tucked away. So For sure. That was super interesting. I mean, it really is one of those things that is a, it's a given of liberal feminism 
it's seen as a logical extension, right? Mm-hmm. If a if a woman can do any job a man can do, and a man never gets pregnant, mm-hmm. that means there's this sort of like, maybe it's a kind of sophistry. I think at rock bottom it is. But if we have this idea that women have been made unequal to men because of their procreative capacities, well then the key to liberation is to make it impossible for a woman to get pregnant without willing it. I mean, like, obviously, if you do not have sex, you cannot get pregnant. I mean, sorry, Virgin Mary, but <laughs> leaving her aside, <laughs> the exception that proves the rule, yes. I might say. Or should we say the conception that Ooh, proves the rule? Nice. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> we understand preconditions, but the actual conditions of what how procreation relates to sex is beyond our control. And technology is giving us these sort of false signals about that because you can make embryos and whatever outside the womb but like mm-hmm. inside the context of a female body it's the body's like autonomous systems yeah. that determine whether or not pregnancy will occur that's right and i think that is just like such a head trip you know that is against this notion of a total autonomy which is central to this idea of yeah. equality mm-hmm. of men and women absolutely it's tough because you want these things to be true you want to think oh we can mm-hmm. have this we can we can negotiate around these obstacles, but on some level, you're always going to come up against the sort of, you know, hard stop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are so many women who get pregnant when they don't want to. And there's so many women who want to get pregnant and can't. Well, that's you know? the other thing of this so, thing that you were talking about natural procreation is there's a problem that the market is going to always be tempted to intervene in a place where you see people making children without any interference from any scientific aids whatsoever and people who cannot enjoy that same luck or fortune or whatever mm-hmm. they're gonna be sad yeah and to have a, it's really hard to have a society that says just be sad uh-huh. you know yeah. but this is what it, they're not equal forces mm-hmm. right because the market is gonna be like I can help you and that goes for anything that goes for not just things with serious ramifications like fertility it's like if you have dry skin put moisturizer on it no one's gonna be like you shall not have moisturizer right. because we your skin fix. was not naturally lubricated <laughs> you know right right so yeah we have, we have solutions for things right exactly which costs something. so it's really hard to <laughs> yeah. to not get into that solutioning space right where right. you say oh we're just helping infertile couples and uh-huh. you know in the beginning right it was uh-huh. just I've written about this, but it was mm-hmm. just, you know, being against, uh, you know, when there's IVF, it's like, oh, we're just helping already married heterosexual people have babies that they would have had any, they could, they, they're right. trying to have, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you know, so. It's, yeah. It's a messy yeah. space. It is a messy space. Shall we say. Mm. All right. So to move on to Mary Harrington's chapter that was, I, I think it's been shortened. Yeah, so we're going to quote from an article by Mary Harrington. It's taken from a chapter in her book. I've listened to the whole audiobook, Feminism Against Progress, and it is so whip She's so fun. It's very I insightful. can listen to her read the phone book. Yeah. She's just got that, like... Yeah, she has this great British accent. She doesn't pull any punches. I highly, I highly recommend everyone get her book when it comes out. But this article, uh, Make Sex Wild Again, she's making what looks to me like a natural law case for reconnecting sex and procreation in practice and in the social imaginary. And while she ends up in a place that many religious conservatives would recognize as their position, she's not getting there by means of religious tradition right. or scripture right. or anything like that. Her own experiences brought her to this position. And that is really interesting. Oh, yeah. I find that really fascinating. 
All right, so first quote. We must heal our polluted erotic ecologies by rewilding sex. In the field of conservation, rewilding refers to practices such as reintroducing apex predators or reducing intervention in a landscape such that complex ecologies are able to reemerge and find equilibrium again. In one famous example, reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone National Park in the United States resulted via a complex chain of interspecies interactions in a river changing course. Applying a similar mindset to our sexual ecologies means a similar willingness to make space for dangerous elements of the natural order. Specifically, we need to recognize that risk-free heterosexual sex can only be had at the cost of reproduction, and eliminating that biological purpose takes much of the dark, dangerous, and profoundly intimate joy out of sex. This is so good. I just love Harrington's concept of rewilding sex by rejecting the pill, and I think it maps onto what I was saying earlier about being skeptical of our controlling technologies and of the need for an attitude towards sex that recognizes its sacredness. Because I think there's a really deep connection between the idea of the sacred and the dangerous, or the sacred and the wild, the sacred and risk. You know, both convey a sense that whatever you're dealing with is bigger than you, it's beyond you, and it requires a humility and a carefulness of approach. You can't just get your hands all the way around this thing and like own it and control it and manage it and take take it to bits, you know, and sell parts of it. Rather, you are a small part of this greater whole that has some kind of claim on you. You're a part of an ecology. You're a biological creature in nature, and you don't always get to call the shots. You are your body, like Hill says, Mm -hmm. you know, and your body has a nature and therefore your sexual relationships also have a nature. And this involves danger, risk, surprise, joy, and usually babies. Well, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) If that didn't function, we wouldn't wouldn't exist. I mean, it's, it's necessary. That's right. Yeah. And Harrington points out that a lot of the joy and intimacy in sex is actually related to this potential for generating new life, that eroticism is connected to adventure, you know, to an act of having high stakes. And so maybe the way to make sex less cheap, to make sex matter again, is to reintroduce the potential for children, the potential for surprise. And because, as I quoted from Harrington earlier, when a baby is born, a mother is born. So to have sex that is at least open to life to some degree is simultaneously being open to becoming a new person yourself, you know, to being reborn as a new version of yourself in a relationship with a brand new human that you helped to create. And that's, that's risky, that's dangerous, it's sacred, and it's scary. And I think it's also good. It's interesting, you know, we were talking earlier about the versions of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to create a new version of yourself through, you know, through a daily medication that changes all these things about you the way that the pill does? Or do you want to create a new version of yourself through having a, having a child? Because that'll definitely change you. It's another way to change yourself, right? But it's well, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a less controlled way, right? Because it's the yes. voluntary, the self-aware versus right. the sort of I mean, it's, it's, we could make a thing about natural sex versus protected, you know, conception avoidant sex mm. and the idea of puberty as something involuntary versus voluntary. Yes. I mean, they really, the, the overlaps are kind of scary because that's because they're scary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's really creepy. Second quote from Mary. We must acknowledge that for all but the small minority of same-sex attracted people, Desire and reproduction can't be disaggregated any more than self and body. All right, so, so this is a great point. Harrington's consistency here highlights what I think is Hill's weak spot because both Hill and Harrington say you can't separate yourself from mm-hmm. your body. You are your body, mm-hmm. and therefore, like Hill says, you are your hormones. 
right? But Hill wants to separate sexual desire from reproduction, right? Being protected from pregnancy and having a fulfilling sex life should not be mutually exclusive. Well, Harrington is saying that's just another untenable false disaggregation. I don't know that either opinion is of the sort of the provable or the disprovable kind, but I think they reflect, you know, different orientations to the world. You know, do we look at humans as fundamentally being an aggregation of parts, like an accumulation of bits that are separable, interchangeable, manipulable, even purchasable, you know, and that attitude lends itself not only to the separation of desire and reproduction through the pill, but also to things like sex change surgeries. Or on the other hand, do we look at humans as being fundamentally wholes, as having an overarching nature which is greater than the sum of its parts and therefore can set limits on what we can do, you know, with and to ourselves. Mm. So Yeah, that's the heart of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Quote three, and along with the pro-pleasure, pro-love case for rewilding sex is the pro-embodiment one. Rejecting birth control is the first and most radical step women can take in healing the disconnect introduced by technology between us and our own bodies in the name of freeing us from sex difference. As Abigail Favale notes, relying on cycle tracking to manage fertility increases women's awareness of our fertility cycles and with it attunement to our own bodies. In this sense of increasing our agency in terms of fertility awareness and bringing women into harmony with our own embodied existence, rejecting the pill is not less but more empowering. And I picked this quote because it hits close to home for me. I'm actually in the process of learning how to chart my own cycles. I'm, I'm reading this book called The Fifth Vital Sign, which references this idea that a woman's menstrual cycle, really it should be called her ovulatory cycle, since yeah. the point is ovulation and fertility, you know, and menstruation is just the byproduct of that, that a woman's cycle is a vital sign of her health, just as much as temperature, pulse, respiration, and blood pressure. And if this is true, that the ovulatory cycle is revealing of one's health, it just seemed very strange for otherwise healthy women to take a daily medication that basically erases this vital sign and covers it over with a systematized, homogenized fake cycle and fake mm-hmm. period that gives you no information about yourself at all. So the pill is kind of like the industrialization of your body and of your sexual life, whereas something like cycle tracking is more like being an organic farmer or like practicing mindfulness or yoga or something else that granola moms typically resonate with. You know, so it's just kind of odd that the pill has really taken root in the left when there are so many of those back to the land, organic style, like yoga, mindfulness. Because it's that overriding (laughs) concern that if you get pregnant when you're too young, your life's over. Right. Right. It's that. It's it's that thing. Mm -hmm. I just love Harrington's case for this like attunement to our own bodies, which is a way to take back your body from big pharma, to listen to it rather than to hush it up, to go with the flow of it rather than to try and manipulate it and manage it and mute its meaning. So I think there's there's agency and self-respect and self-awareness in that cycle tracking approach. And that's partly why I'm drawn to it. But it's not easy to do. It definitely requires training and practice and effort. But there's plenty of data out there to show that if it's done properly, natural family planning through cycle tracking can be up to 99.4% effective at avoiding pregnancy if it's an inopportune time. But it achieves that not through technology, but through the cooperative self-control of both the husband and the wife. Which, you know, is the overarching idea that Ida Craddock had over a century right. ago. So and, just, and it's an interesting connection. And it's not a numbers game because, mm-hmm. like, in the context of... There's a difference between 99.4 and 100. 
There and the is. difference is a baby. Yeah, the difference is a baby. Right, <laughs> exactly. Just, I'm gonna say just that a little later. bit of baby, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, so, and like and that's with perfect use, right? And all these studies of, of any kind of contraception they're gonna show. Here's like average use, right. what people really right. do, and the right. percentages. And then here's perfect use, you know. And most contraceptions, most forms of you know, contraceptive as well as, you know, yeah, um, I mean, natural family planning. If it's perfect, if you do it perfectly, they're all pretty good. Right, but, but real life, humans aren't perfect. women aren't perfect, right? Yes. So with any of them, it's... my thought is why why pay a drug company for a product that, as Harrington says, makes you fat, miserable, and sexless, or at least has the potential to do that, that masks your body's fifth vital sign, and that potentially mutes your experience of life. Why choose that when you could instead grow in personal responsibility and mutual responsibility with a partner and cultivate self awareness of your body's natural rhythms? You know, and you could do that while retaining respect for the dangerous surprise of procreation, which is what makes women set and keep high standards for men. For sure. <laughs> right? And, you know, contributes to eroticism and intimacy. That's the case that Harrington is making. And I agree with her on this one. If that approach doesn't fit well with today's higher education system and with capitalism, why on earth should we manipulate our bodies for the sake of that system, you know, that values sterility and androgyny over naturally cycling women and mothers? I think the system should change to accommodate the biological realities of women's bodies and not the other way around. So, and I hope it goes without saying that I think, I think this is a matter of cultural change, not law or policy. Yeah. And Harrington is very careful yeah. to say that as well. Right. Yeah. And so I think people should be free to make their own choices on this matter, but there's a beautiful and persuasive case to be made against the pill and for cycle tracking. And there's a case to be made against delaying pregnancy past prime fertility years and for being open to life and to marriage sooner rather than later. For sure. No, I think the the fertility thing is such a is such a scam. I mean, it's mm. just so it's so disappointing because I just think that it's that fear of missing out drive, right? It's yeah. it's this idea that oh, if I if I do have a child now, that means I'm giving up on forever of this other thing. And first of all, like the future is never guaranteed. That's right. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's really sad. But it's very real. I mean, it really does haunt women a lot. Hmm. In a way, you are very lucky albeit you grew up in a very particular environment, Mm -hmm. you were lucky to have that particular environment basically give you like a go around of that. Mm -hmm. Definitely needs to be presented as an option. And right now it's not even an option. And so I love that Harrington is engaging in this provocation, right? Mm -hmm. Of saying there should be options, right? Yes. She's this really interesting kind of person because she was like this typical you know, we call like cusp of the internet liberal, (laughs) did all this experimental living and Thought she could save the world and get rich at the same time. This sort of very yeah. new labor, I think, the party mm-hmm. had. That there was a moment there. And, you know, so she has this really liberal style of reasoning her way towards what most people, as we said, would call a conservative position. But, of course, it's not a conservative position because mm-hmm. Harrington is not saying ban birth control. Right. She's not even saying don't have premarital sex. She's rather, she's saying, women, you have options, but, like, are these options serving you? Mm-hmm. And how some women are finding that the answer is that they are not being served, right? Yeah. So here's the one quote. Here's a quote. In the view of internet historian Catherine D, changing attitudes to the pill stand in for wider concerns about the sexual revolution. Many young women from across the political spectrum, she argues, internalize the contemporary liberated approach to sex, but have, as D puts it, come to feel they were duped. Increasingly, such women are blaming hormonal, hormonal birth control for a slew of side effects. They're looking for alternatives, too. Videos with the natural birth control hashtag on TikTok have been viewed more than 30 million times. Wow. So this interrogation, this question, it's good. But if this trend is going to go anywhere, we need to understand that, well, I think what Harrington is talking about is not ultimately 
about exchanging the pill for another technology that eliminates risk mm-hmm. because there isn't one. Right. And it's really irresponsible to say, you know, you can achieve the same guarantee about preventing pregnancy with cycle tracking. Don't worry. Yeah. And I've listened to some feminists very cavalierly say, oh, you can only get pregnant in like three days a month. Don't worry. You know, it's easy. Mm. And, and that's not great. because that's not fair. Yeah. Because it's not technically false. But I just think that percentage risk is the absolutely wrong way to approach this. Yeah. Because humans suck at understanding <laughs> risk, how risk yes. compounds yes. Um, with exposure. So the risk of any individual exposure, any individual like sex encounter, we might say, mm-hmm. but with enough 1% chances multiplied mm-hmm. together. Right, over the course of your, a lifetime. Your, over a course of even yeah. a year. Yeah. Your yeah. chance is now 100%. 100%. That's a baby. That's a pregnancy. <laughs> That's right. Boom. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. whether you can consider abortion an option or not, and in a post-Roe world, I mean, this thing about, like, banning the abortion pill, which was approved 20-some-odd mm. years ago, I mean, mm. it's crazy time. So you can't even, how Harrington talks about how birth control, you know, ratcheted up the need for abortion as a backstop. Yeah. So, like, it goes this way, too. If women go off the pill, they're going to possibly need abortion as a backstop even more, right? Uh, so you can't even have... if they don't change their behavior. Well... If they right. don't want to, if they think, I want to be a naturally psyching woman, I want to have sex, but I don't want to be pregnant right now, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. It, it adds up lot. to, like, yeah. I mean, because we're, mm-hmm. we're not assuming, because Harrington isn't taking the position that women are all going to turn pro-life. Right, <laughs> She's not right. taking that position. Uh, so right, she's right. saying, you know, be more careful. Yes. But more careful isn't necessarily enough, because right. accidents happen. Yep. So I just, this, I just feel like I need to say pregnancy prevention is not the same as trying out a new makeup regime. Yeah. <laughs> so God help any woman who is taking her birth control advice from TikTok. Oh yeah. It's just no. not great. No, I just, I, it just makes me very skeptical because yeah. I think really this is about something much deeper than the method mm-hmm. of birth control. Mm-hmm. It's she's questioning the priors behind the need to switch off the fertility of young women. Yeah. And these priors are, are twofold. I think one is about when to get pregnant And the other one is about who to get pregnant by. Mm -hmm. So the when issue has always existed. And on the whole, I'd say this is where birth control has provided some real benefits for very young women who, for whatever reason, become sexually active. And so I'm personally never going to advocate for abstinence education over birth control provision if the latter allows girls to, say, graduate high school without having a child. Like there's this county in Texas where they do abstinence only. And they have like the highest rate in the nation of not just teen pregnancy, but like teenagers having their second child while they're still teenagers oh no it's like oh that's terrible yeah right i mean this is like i just there's just no contest there for me i don't have your religious priors about sex and abortion Mm -hmm. but i do have the priors of my (laughs) class upbringing and unwed teenage pregnancy or even wed teenage pregnancy Mm -hmm. i don't really see it as bestowing any distinct advantages it's not stigma like Mm -hmm. i don't want to stigmatize those young women who have babies very young Mm -hmm. but it's like data it's like, yeah. what are the outcomes long-term for someone who has a child when they're not ready? Yeah. They don't tend to be particularly grand. Right. For um, yeah. especially poor women. Yeah. And most teenagers are not ready. I don't think you have to wait till you're 35. No. I, I think there's got to be <laughs> But also 16 like, is not yeah, good either. No, 50, yeah, exactly. There's, there's yeah. so many years between 15 That's and right. 35. That's right. And I don't know, 22 to 27? Yes. Is that decent? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So it's not about stigma. Right. But anyway, I don't think, I just, I needed to get that out of the way as a caveat because Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's like a panacea to take all the women off birth control. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's Harrington's audience. Harrington's audience is not poor Hispanic Catholics in Texas who are giving no sex education. 
Her audience is women <laughs> in college and beyond who spend their 20s, their peak fertility, mm-hmm. orienting their mental lives around career and their sex lives around pleasure without pregnancy risk. Yeah. So Harrington isn't saying that planning parenthood or sexual pleasure are not good aims in themselves. She's for both of those. Mm-hmm. But she's asking women to connect the dots on whether risk-free sex is actually conducive to those goals, right? Mm-hmm. Either is it conducive to well-timed parenthood, is it conducive to good sex? And yeah. she's saying it's not good for either, right? Mm-hmm. For in de-risking sex, this technology has made it ubiquitous and in the process stripped desire of anticipation, excitement, and mystery. Emptied it of eroticism. In its place were offered an increasingly coarse, commodified, and grotesque landscape of all-you-can-eat lust. Ugh. And young women are starting to realize that they are at a significant disadvantage when it comes to the way that lust is manipulated in our culture. It's, mm. like, literally deployed, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, lust as a service, right? Mm. Porn is the rule now, not the exception. And the violence and degradation of the porn that any kid, boy or girl, yeah. can see on their phones now determines the backdrop against which any and all intimacy will be experienced. Hmm. So I have what we might characterize as liberal attitudes about sex. I came of age in, I guess we would say, like the 90s. So mm-hmm. I shudder to imagine what it would be like to be young in this day and age. <laughs> yeah. And there has always been a very big gap between younger and older women, right? They hate us because they will become us, as Kelly J. Keene says. But that gap is now even bigger because of the increase in explicit sexuality in mainstream culture. Liberal women are simply told that casual sex is pleasurable and that it is part of their political priors to be pro-sex. Mm. It's a control issue, right? The same people who don't... This is the, this is the read from that mm. side of the camp, right? The same people who want to outlaw abortion don't want you having casual sex. And I agree that the state has no business deciding what reproductive behaviors are moral. Mm-hmm. But I think... Because I think that's illiberal in the extreme. Yeah. But I think that's also why Harrington's argument is so interesting because she's not saying that premarital casual sex is immoral. She's simply saying that is that it's at cross purposes yes. for what many of the women engaging in it actually ultimately want. Mm-hmm. And that they're engaging in it because they've been sold a bill of goods that is the righteous stance. Yeah. We've politicized these sexual priors. Yeah. You have to be pro-sex or else you're an evil conservative who doesn't believe in reproductive rights. Right. <laughs> And that's bad news, right? And so Uh, Harrington says, We reactionary feminists must reject the totalitarian sexual industrial complex. (laughs) We can reclaim our sexual cycles, our capacity for eroticism, our attunement to our own bodies, and our right to refuse exploitative, loveless, and degrading approaches. And in refusing this degraded parody of our most intimate embodied experiences, we can open ourselves to better ones. Mm. So that's great. This is an admirable vision to the extent... That it doesn't revert to purity-based obsessions of women. But it also pushes back against this mindless, sex-positive, no-downsides feminism. Right. So yeah, let's look at, more frankly, at trade-offs of the pill. But the sea change we need has to come from the broader cultures. This is not just... Yeah, we need to expose not just the harms of this technology, but the harms of the ideology that makes it so necessary. Yes. Right? So this story, this is a good story to illustrate that. Mm -hmm. You might remember in Loudoun County, there was this scandal about a year or so ago about a young man, a student, who had sex with another student, age 14, in the female restroom of the school. And she reported him for rape because she had not consented, which Mm -hmm. is, that's all fine as it goes. Mm -hmm. But this crime got all wrapped up in the trans debate because the young man was like some version of gender fluid and he wore a skirt or whatever. 
And so the clickbait version of the story became, boy uses trans identity to rape women in bathroom. That's what I thought the whole story was. I had not realized it was all this other. But is, I mean, but it wasn't really that story. Mm. It was actually a much more traditional story Mm. about this moment we live in, right? This idea that like gender woo, as the Brits call it, Mm. it, you know, is is bad because it makes male, it allows males to be predatory. It's a smokescreen and it it works for both political sides. What's happening here is that there's a young male and a young female in a sexual relationship in a school bathroom where in this bathroom they had previously had consensual sex. And that's the missing story. (laughs) In what frigging world is sex in a school restroom appropriate or desirable behavior? Where is the pleasure there? So the right sees gender woo based predation and the left sees the letter of the law, she didn't consent, lock him away. Mm-hmm. Right? And no one seems to be able to muster the middle of the road critique, which is like, why don't we want better sex for young people? Yeah. You know, like bundling. Like, what, <laughs> couldn't we just have a sleepover where they just leave their clothes on and they're just all happy and cuddly? Like, parentally supervised sleepovers. Isn't, isn't that better? <laughs> yes. I mean, it's consent yeah. is the bottom floor here. Where mm. is the outrage? About the fact that sex in a school bathroom with a boy who clearly doesn't respect you. Where's the outrage that that's not the sexual liberation women fought for? Right. That's not sexually mm-hmm. liberating. Why is it taken for granted that sex in the bathroom is totally fine as long as the girl says yes? <laughs> the first couple times, they were fucking awesome! But the, like, the third time when he just doesn't take no for an answer, oh, crime! I mean, and the reason there's no outrage about it is because our culture is now saturated with these fictions, mm. and porn is just one of them. Have you ever watched, like, Euphoria or Industry? Or, like, there's all these, like, modern streaming shows that, like, glorify this kind of, what I would call, I think we can only honestly call them anti-intimate sex. Ugh. And it, this is advertised as the apotheosis of sex, of self-actualization, of freedom, mm. Of you doing you. Oh, God. Right? Right? Yeah. So choking, right? Something I consider abuse. I cannot see that in a, like, <laughs> it's not pro-sex. That's just violence. Yeah. 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 It's not just standard in porn. It's standard in intimate relationships of young people. Yeah. I say in that article, right, where they actually have these women. This is from the, I'll put in the show notes. Yeah. You know, women describe that young men just choke them in bed during sex as a matter of course. They don't even no. ask. No. They because assume, they, that, they assume that porn is like... This is what a woman is. This is what a man is. Do this. They take it as like instructional. Yeah. I want to say it's something like 40% of, there's a research study that showed, I can't remember what college, but they they asked the college students, like 40% of them said that they've had, they've been non-consensually, without asking, choked during sexual encounters. Right. And women often don't say no because they're worried about being considered a prude. That's crazy. Right? This is British. I don't want to pass out from being choked. My gosh. It, it just makes no sense. No. But in the in 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 the culture of those priors, mm-hmm. where there literally is, you can do no wrong. There is no bottom to this race. To this race to the bottom. <laughs> yeah. There's no point too low. Yeah, um, no limits. It's just consent, just freedom. <gasps> oh God! I mean, it's like it's. I, I mean, I I can't even put my. I, there's like hardly any words to describe. What a kind of disconnect being liberal about sex, which I consider myself liberal about sex. I just can't even capture very effectively the space that I'm in and the space that is now being claimed as what it means to be liberal about wow. sex. They have nothing in common. 
Wow. This is why I constantly sound like a freaking conservative now. Because the liberal <laughs> position is occupied by like, oh God, I can't have the guy thinking I'm... Because literally in their minds, they're thinking, oh, if, if I'm a prude, if I can't do the things that he's used to in porn, he's just going to go find someone else. Hmm. So this isn't, this isn't a discussion about the pill in that sense. Mm-hmm. This is much broader. Yeah. It's much broader. And you know, to bring it back to Craddock, mm-hmm. it's about men. Mm-hmm. We, have to, we have to teach these boys... That, you know, that porn is not good. Yeah. Be- not because, like, having erotic fantasies or watching erotic content isn't good. It's it's the specifics of it. It's the specifics of that they are learning to equate intimacy with sexual degradation and abuse. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that specific. It's, I mean, so it's, it's these priors. Like, the, the whole entire sexual liberation that I understand has nothing in common with this we can't talk about kids having sex in the bathroom, sex work is real work, only fans, like yeah. nothing. I don't even know even how to characterize that difference politically. Wow. Because it's so deep. It's really helpful for me to hear that coming from a conservative perspective to be like that you see yourself as very different from whatever this new thing is that's Totally now. different. Because I think a lot of conservatives just see like, oh, those liberals, you know, like just kind of lump you all into like into one group that you're all going off the deep end, right? But you're also saying... They're going off the deep end. Like, you're seeing that too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, it's unrecognizable. I do not recognize that kind of sexual culture. And, you know, if you think... And the the difference between, like, me and my parents is that my parents don't even know this stuff is happening. Because they're not even party to, like... You know, they're not really aware of the gender wars. Because, I mean, you never see this stuff covered on, you know, the news that they would watch. Like... Until on the Navas in you know on the PBS News Hour says something about like you know pro women rights advocates getting beat up by activists like it's it's it just doesn't exist. There, yeah. Classical liberals like the Boomers, my parents, mm-hmm. you know that generation, they are completely ignorant. They sort of they still think that liberalism means the kind of things that I was taught. Oh. They don't really see that it's gone into the land of cray cray. They have yeah. no exposure to that. I mean, I don't even use TikTok. Well, my parents certainly don't use TikTok. <laughs> okay, next time. All right. Uh, well, speaking of generational divides. Right, right. Yeah. Timely. <laughs> yes. We're going to be uh, reading Hags, The Demonization of Middle-Aged Women by Victoria Smith. And our older book will be The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. Yeah, I'll probably post some sort of indications about which chapters are most relevant yeah. to that. Yeah. I'm rereading it now anyway. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like the early chapters. Okay. That's a wrap. Awesome. Keep keep reading people. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.